Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Heather Adams here. Thank you for joining us. Over the next hour, we'll be recommending some great books. And I've been talking to author Ellie Pilcher. And we'll be discussing books for the summer reading. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a great show coming up. Alongside me, as always, is Julian Ashton. Good morning, Julian. Good morning, Heather. And so, what do we have coming up this morning? Well, I've been talking to Ellie Pilcher, whose book, What Planet Can I Blame It On?, is a laugh-out-loud, funny read about the perils of your quarter-life crisis. Mm. It's been described as a mix between Bridget Jones's diary and Miranda. Oh, yes, good. We've also chosen a theme of summer reading and which books to choose for our holidays this year. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for everyone. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, if you have any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So, Julian, let's start with interesting tidbits that we spotted in the press all about books. What have you spotted? Well, this is a, uh, an interesting one. It's about a hidden library, um, a lost library, if you, uh, if you will, which contains some of the world's most sought-after manuscripts, and it's coming up for auction. Now, the whole of the collection was created uh, by 19th-century Lancashire mill owners, Alfred and William Law, and it contains such delights as Emily Bronte's handwritten manuscript script for her final collection of poems complete with editing by her sister Charlotte. It also includes items such as Walter Scott's Rob Roy manuscript and letters, both of Scott and also the Bronte family letters. Sotheby's, who are auctioning the library, estimate that the total contents could fetch as much as a ten million pounds. Wow, that's amazing. So it's got a load of Bronte letters in them. Mm, yes. So do you think it'll be bought by another collector and then hidden from 
well, view? Well, I'd hope, I would hope that maybe something like this, that uh, libraries at universities perhaps um, might be able to buy the collection so that it is available to scholars, or that indeed maybe the government, if it's that important, might step in and, and put um, export bans on them um, to allow people to actually raise the money. It would be a great pity if, if these manuscripts and letters left the country. Yes, it would. Yeah. That would be a shame. Yeah. Well, let's hope we get the government or a university to uh, to buy them. That Indeed. sounds fantastic. So I like a Tudor. And I think actually we all like the Tudors. For some reason, it's a re- it resonates in our, uh, our books and our films and our plays. And there's a great book that's just come out called The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein by Franny, by Franny Moyle. And it's just been published and it is a fantastic mm. book. I mean, it's... It's a beautiful book, the way it's published. Yes, yes. And it's had a huge amount of publicity, and deservedly so. It's a little bit pricey, but well worth it. So the Times described it as a great thrusting codpiece of a book. (laughs) And I think that phrase just brilliantly captures that famous picture that Hans Holbein did of Henry VIII. So if you think of Henry VIII, you imagine him, don't you, with his arms on his hips and his sort of legs akimbo and his codpiece to the front, looking like an alpha male. And it's just brilliant. And... Hans Holbein is the most amazing painter of all times. And sadly, there's little left about him as a man. Mm-hmm. So what Franny Moyle has done is he's, she's looked at his work and then also at the setting of his life. And uh, there was one brilliant story from the book, which I just want to share with mm-hmm. you, which was when in his early career, when he was just a, a jobbing painter, he had a job painting a pub sign. Oh, really? And he was doing it very slowly. <laughs> And the pub landlord kept complaining he was doing it too slowly. So what he did, because Hans Holbein was very clever at uh, doing a portrait and it made you feel as though the the person in the portrait was actually in the room with you. So what he did is he painted two legs um, (laughs) hanging down by the ladder. And so the pub landlord would come out, (laughs) see two legs on a ladder, assume it was Hans Holbein busy working away. <laughs> a very, very witty man. <laughs> Which is just yeah, lovely. So, is. anyway, if you've just read The Mirror and the Light, or if you're watching Anne Boleyn on Channel 5, or if you're just fascinated with the Tudors, uh, then this is a brilliant book and it's published by Head of Zeus and is out now. Well, excellent. That sounds wonderful. Well, I've got a, another piece here, um, and this is another book for art lovers, uh, and it's the David Hockney exhibition at the Royal Academy, uh, which is now just opened, and it's based on the latest book of his paintings, Spring Cannot Be Cancelled, and it's published by Thames and Hudson, one of the uh, leading um, uh, art book publishers here in the UK. And it's lavishly illustrated and records um, Spring in Normandy, which he painted via iPad. It also covers uh, long-distance conversations Hockney has been having with his friend and art critic Martin Gayford about his work. Um, Reaching the Sunday Times bestseller list, this book was described by the Times as not so much a celebration of spring as a springboard for ideas about art, space, 
time and light. Now, it's really interesting where he says that, that he painted this in Normandy because I just read an article about David Hockney yesterday. Oh, yeah. Uh, and saying the reason he moved to, um, to Normandy is he's rather sick and tired of what he calls the bossy boots in the UK for increasingly banning smoking, of which he thoroughly enjoys and smokes about 20 cigarettes a day. And he opined and said, well, I've been smoking since I was 16. I'm now 84. He said, I've, I, I've actually uh, outlived three of my doctors. <laughs> and he, in the end, he said, I'm going to, I'm surely going to die of either a smoke-related disease or a non-smoking-related disease. And he's just as witty as always has been. Uh, and and he, was, he made a bit of a waspish comment about Oxford City, because I believe the city fathers are trying to make Oxford and the whole oh, county yes. the first smoke-free zone in the UK. And, uh, well, he was not too impressed by that. So, Hockney, obviously, you won't be visiting there. Then. I don't think so. <laughs> but I think Hockney has just got this amazing um, view on life, isn't he? Has. he? He's it really, really vibrant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, actually, he probably embodies Noel Coward's dictum that work is more fun than fun. Exactly. <laughs> I think so. You're right. Exactly. And so to think that he's 82, is it? Uh, 82 or 84, I think, maybe and, 84. And he's working away yep, full still. tilt. and Full tilt. Absolutely full tilt. And yeah. also he's really into technology. He is. So I yes. remember back in the 80s or it might even be the late 70s he was associated with fax pictures I do apologise if anyone can hear a strange noise, there seems to be some building work happening underneath us um, so yes, his fax pictures uh, were sent all around the world including to Salt Mill in Saltaire and we oh, right. got a connection yeah. there uh, through my husband uh, that's right to, of course, yeah. yes um, so that was just amazing so now he's doing iPad pictures. I know, it's amazing. The other uh, other snippet I've got is um, Seven Ways to Change the World by Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister, um, published by Simon Schuster in June, on June 10th. Uh, and it's subtitled How to Fix the Most Pressing Issues We Face. Uh, New Ways of Thinking uh, in the Light of the Global Pandemic by the former PM. When the COVID-19 pandemic swept across the globe uh, last year, it created an unprecedented impact around the world, greater than the aftermath of the 9-11 outrage or the global financial crisis. But out of such disruption can come a new way of thinking. And in this superb and authoritative book, the former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, offers his solutions to the challenges we will face in this year and in the years beyond 2021. Um, The seven such issues are health, climate change, poverty, education, um, and these should be on the world's agenda today. And maybe with the G7 summit, it might be. Absolutely. But none can be solved by one nation alone, um, he says, but it can be addressed if we all work together as a global community. Well, I hope after the pandemic and the construction of the the vaccine, that will hopefully allow countries to see the benefit of working together. Exactly. Oh, one little snippet. Um, The the, the professor, the lady professor that was instrumental in inventing the vaccine, she is going to be up for an honour. I believe I saw that in the paper today. That's great news. Yes, it is. Summer holiday, no more working for a week or two. Fun and laughter on a summer holiday, no more worries for me or you. For a week or two, we're going where the sun shines brightly. 
We're going where the sea is blue. We've seen it in the movies. Now let's see if it's true. Everybody has a summer holiday, doing things they always wanted to. So we're going on a This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. So we're hoping the sun is shining all through the summer and we've got a lovely set of recommendations for you about summertime reading. And one of those books I'd like to recommend is Ellie Pilcher's recent book, What Planet Can I Blame This On? It's just been published by Hodder Studio to great acclaim. And it's a humorous look at life. How, uh, uh, sorry, it's a humorous look at how life can send you off kilter through no fault of your own. So the hero, Crystal, finds out her new fiancé has been two-timing her. She lands her dream job in a magazine only to find herself made redundant as the company's bought just two weeks after her start date. And the pipes in her dream flat burst, making the place unlivable. So the stars are obviously not in position and Crystal is determined to make them fall in line. So it's in the bookshops now and it's a real good laugh. And we've previously had Ellie on the show talking about her book but I also wanted to ask her about her writing experience and the inspirations behind What Planet um, and, and also the concept of Saturn Returns, which is instrumental in the, uh, in the book. So anyway, I've been talking to, uh, to Ellie, so let's listen to what she had to say. Ellie, good morning. <laughs> Tell me about What Planet Can I Blame It On in terms of the research that you had to do for it. Oh, there's a lot of Googling. I mean, I've known, I knew a bit about astrology and the basics of zodiac and star signs, but uh, I definitely had to do a lot of digging into Saturn return and how people use it on a day-to-day basis. So lots of Googling, uh, read a few books, and uh, I actually spoke to quite a lot of people within the astrology industry. So there was a few people that uh, they actually write horoscopes for magazines and a few people that follow them religiously as well. So it was a really lovely chance to meet new people as well as learn new things. That's a great thing to do for a, for a book. So has it given you a different impression on astrology? I think so, yeah. I think I'm definitely much more open-minded to it uh, than I was before. I was kind of half in and half out, um, not sure, a bit cynical maybe, but now I'm a bit more convinced that maybe there's the stars have something to do with our personalities and our futures and whatnot. I'm not sure exactly how much I'm going to go and follow my horoscope every day, for example, but uh, there's something there and uh, it's quite nice to have something to believe in. We're talking about astrology here, but obviously your book isn't really about astrology. It's about relationships, isn't it? And it's really funny. I I read that it's being described as a cross between Bridget Jones's diary and Miranda. How, How close do you think that is? That was a great description, I thought. Oh, it was. It was. I made my day when I read that. I think there's there's definitely a lot of kind of Miranda feels about it. That's a sort of talking to the camera, almost breaking the fourth wall. And also, these things that just go wrong in your life, and you just have to laugh about it. Oh, you know, if you don't laugh, you cry. And so, yeah, I was I was very pleased. And to hear a character being likened to Bridget Jones, who is you know pretty much the heroine of all contemporary women's fiction, is uh, is an absolute dream. So, did you have this in mind when you were writing a book? Did you know what type of book you wanted to write when you when you first started? When I first started it, yes, definitely. I kind of knew that I wanted to delve into contemporary women's fiction and it to be a proper laugh out loud kind of romantic comedy. I mean, I wrote it during lockdown, so it was a proper escapist experience for me, but also I wanted it to be an escapist read for others because uh, we never, we didn't know what we were going to be. And as the case, maybe it's, it's publishing or it's published even into a lockdown again. So um, it was a 
a high point for me to make it properly fun and available to read for anybody, be it on staycation or on a beach or just sitting on your sofa with the kids in the background screaming. Yeah, so. definitely a good summer read, isn't it? Yeah. So what advice would you give someone who's looking to write a book? Oh, I think the best advice someone ever gave me, which I still uh, listen to actually, is turn off the TV. Uh, it sounds a bit... <laughs> just a bit odd, I suppose, being writer. But I think sometimes uh, we can get distracted uh, by one watching it, but also what we see on TV and what we think we should be writing. So uh, turn off the TV for one and then get writing. Uh, you cannot edit a blank page. So even if you write utter twaddle, just get it out and then you'll find something within that that you can turn into gold, basically. So uh, tell the TV and start writing. So has television or authors influenced your writing at all? In some cases, yes. I mean, I, I read a lot. I read over 100 books a year, not including the ones I read for my um, publishing career. And then TV, I'm a big TV fan. My family are big binge watchers. So uh, I'm always influenced by stories and things like that. But I tend to write things that I imagine rather than things I've seen. So it's I'm not really inspired to write stories I've seen on TV, if that makes sense. So, But it is a good escapism and it always reminds me about character development. And I love hearing what characters say and things like that so yeah so what are you reading at the moment oh at the moment i am reading a book called madam by phoebe Wynn. it's a book club read of mine and it's incredibly suspenseful it's i don't know how to describe it exactly it's such a boarding school in scotland in the 90s and it's a real almost psychological thriller about a teacher that's just been hired there and doesn't know what's going on and these children are quite strange so but yes very interesting read is it? And you're you're in the middle of that at the moment. Right in the middle. So I have no idea what's coming for me, but I can't wait to find out. Excellent. Oh, I love a book when you have to think, oh, yes, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. So which authors have influenced you most in writing? Oh, so many. So, so many. I mean, from a young age, I was I was very big into classics when I was younger. I, I always liked to kind of feel like I was a very no intelligent young girl young woman by reading lots and lots of classics at a very early age so Francis Hodgson Burnett was very important to me growing up I think as well children's books I mean JK Rowling I know there's conversations going on there but I was heavily inspired by Harry Potter growing up it was integral to my childhood so that's very key and then surprisingly maybe historical fiction writers so there's lots of them too many to name but historical fiction was a very my favorite probably genre growing up and that's purely because history is just stories and I studied it at university as well and it's um I realized with the benefit of hindsight the reason I love history so much is because it is just stories about people so yes I read a lot of like Bernhard Schlink and uh, Sue Monk Kidd and her amazing stories so yeah lots of lots of authors history is just one damn thing after another isn't it so if you're going on a desert island and you're allowed sort of half a dozen books what what's going to be included oh that'll be a tough one my bookshelf's behind me i could just feel the pressure i mean harry potter and the philosopher's stone definitely i've read that book three times in one day i was a very precocious child also the secret life of bees which is sue monk kid who i mentioned before the reader by bernhard schlink who i also mentioned before if I could, I'd take my own book, which may sound narcissistic, but I'd be very, very, you know, just a reminder of how wonderful that experience has been. That's a choice. That's a great yeah. choice. Well done. <laughs> but so, so much. I'd probably take a lot of Beth O'Leary because her books make me smile so much. And Laura Jane Williams, again, another contemporary women's fiction author. You know, there, there are so many to choose from and it would really depend on my mood. I'm a proper mood reader. Ah, right. So this is what it is. It's it's how you feel on the day, is it? It does. Yeah. If I feel like I want to read something sad or weepy, if I feel something escapist and happy, or if I just want to feel like I say intelligent again, I'll pick up War and Peace one day. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you work in book publishing and you're involved in the marketing of books. So I won't be mean and ask you what you're going to recommend because obviously you're going to recommend all of your authors and that's that's cheating. <laughs> but looking at other people's lists, what's going to be the summer read that you're looking in the press for coming up that you're thinking, oh, yes, that's the book for me? Oh, I mean, I must admit, I cannot wait for the next Sally Rooney novel to come out in uh, September, October time. I can't remember the title of The Life of Me. My brain's just gone blank, but I've read both her previous books and obviously the TV series came out last year and her writing is just stupendous, absolutely wonderful, and I cannot wait to read it. And of course, there's a second Richard Osman. I mean, he's a phenomenon now. He's kind of, you know, everyone has to read Richard Osman. So that'll be another. But there's there's lots and lots of books coming out around Christmas time. It's going to be a very very good year for publishing I think and I sincerely hope so Ellie thank you very much indeed and good luck with your book thank you yeah she definitely deserves lots of luck there This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. Thank you for joining us. So we've just been chatting about um, Ellie Pilcher's book, who's uh, What Planet Will I Could I Plane This On, which is ideal for summer reading. And I've been chatting to um, Ray at the Marlowe Bookshop as well and asking her generally about books and also about the t- type of books that we should take with us when we go on holiday. So let's have a listen to that conversation. Morning, it's lovely of you to join us from the uh, Marlowe Bookshop and the sun is shining out there and I just wanted to talk about summer reading. I've got, you know, some good books lined up in my pile, yes. Uh, uh, So first of all, I'm just going to ask a general question. Do you think people's reading habits change when they go on holiday? Yes, I do. I think uh, holiday is more about the kind of comfort of really enjoying what you really enjoy instead of perhaps you might at other times read worthy books or books maybe you know the booker prize winner because you feel you ought to because you're staying in touch i think when you're on holiday you can sort of let go a bit it it, you know in literary terms put on your flip flops settle down and yeah just 
just relax and really ease into. And I, I think perhaps you'd like to be transported to somewhere else. And I think obviously this year, with all our staycations on the horizon, we definitely want to be transported somewhere. So you've got some suggestions for some summer reading, have you, for us? Yes, I have indeed. I've got one of the books that I've finished recently and really, really loved is called Miss Benson's Beetle. Rachel Joyce, who wrote The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, I don't know if you've come across it, she, I think, is particularly good at giving us tender but quite direct portraits of individuals who are, like all of us, frankly, flawed. We're making mistakes, but we're picking ourselves up and we're moving on. And her characters, you really come to engage with and love. I got into Rachel Joyce through The Music Room, which was a fabulous book. Somebody recommended it to me. And of course, I bought it and then had to read all her other books because she's so fantastic. Yes, she is. She is. Absolutely. This one, Miss Benson's Beetle, tells the tale of Miss Benson. We're in the 50s. Miss Benson is a teacher. She's had some tragedy in her early life. She basically runs out of the school one day and decides to go to the other side of the world and look for the fabled golden beetle that her father told her about when she was a little girl. And if anyone out there ever thought about yes i just want to go and escape this is this is a great book for that so she meets up with some you know an unlikely uh, companion they have all kinds of adventures it made me laugh out loud you know there's a really funny bit where she's trying to get into a hammock if you've ever tried without instruction it's really difficult anyway we follow their adventures we we, we love them we laugh we cry it's I think it's a brilliant summer read. It's one of my recent favourites. Moving on, I've got, you know, an absolute pile of books here. A book I I read recently and also really enjoyed. It was the Costa book of the year 2020. The Mermaid of Black Conch. Um, Have you read? I haven't read, but there is so much about it in the press. It's sort of mentioned in every book list you can imagine. I absolutely love weird, quirky, magic realist. I I love the strange, the eccentric and the a, a hugely heightened imagination. So I loved this. Near the island of fishermen sings to himself while waiting for a catch. But David attracts a sea dweller that he never expected. Asia, an innocent young woman cursed by jealous wives to live as a mermaid. And it, it's really... You know, as soon as you say mermaid, we're in Disney territory. But what would it actually be like to meet and engage with a being that's half human and half fish? Where would you put her? In the bath. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And then what? <laughs> what does she eat? So how does she how does she keep clean? It's bizarre, beautiful and strange and I thoroughly recommend it. So that's an other world worldly one then, is it? Very definitely an otherworldly one. Yes. I've picked up a couple of non-fiction books because sometimes you want or sometimes we all enjoy, you know, a, a dip into something that's a bit on the non-fiction side. And in particular, the nature table is full of wonderful reads. 
Dara McNulty's book, The Diary of a Young Naturalist, is written by an autistic teenager and his observations of the natural world are so beautiful piercing and heartfelt and and they also say a lot about what about his own struggles with his condition with school and how life is for him so we're learning about him and the condition and the natural world as well thoroughly recommend it absolute goose bumper that one it's, oh, that sounds lovely if you if you like me are you know you walk into a bookshop i've got piles of books that are on my to do this one's just arrived grace dent hungry no um, i don't know anything about this one mm. well grace dent writes a food column um in the guardian from time to time i've come across her there and also i've come across her on the radio she's got a marvelously softly spoken but very intense way of being and this her book hungry a memoir of wanting more right. i literally have not even had a flick through but i can't wait to read it's saying she's tra- it's tracing grace's story from growing up eating beige food to becoming one of britain's best loved food writers and it's also the story of how we in britain have lived laughed and eaten over the past 40 years do you know just saying that i'm already thinking about yorkshire pudding and gravy that's all beige <laughs> it, it definitely is beige isn't it? we've just done in our last show we were talking about cookery books and it was really interesting going back into all our favorite cookery books and why we read them so i've got to say that immediately goes oh that sounds really interesting because i think as a nation we've really evolved our cooking from what it was like when i was growing up Yes, yes, absolutely. I I can remember wine being a thing. Crown of crowns. You were so sophisticated when you had a glass of wine, weren't you? I can remember, you know, as a child, yoghurt being quite a new thing. Flavoured yoghurt that you had as a dessert, you know, that was well, quite... <laughs> I don't think we were allowed that. <laughs> I know we didn't have any sauces, so we didn't have any sort of tomato sauce or brown sauce or anything like that. So we had a very bland diet, I think. <laughs> and cabbage was compulsory, I feel. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. And cooked for a fortnight. Yeah. So that sounds that sounds really good. Okay. So that's Hungry by Grace Dent. That's right. I also wanted to pick out a couple of books that might be good to give us gifts. Um, oh, with Father's Day round the corner. Usually the Father's Day books that sell well, there may be something sporty on the cricketing side, maybe something on the war memorabilia side. But I've chosen the, it's a pricey book, but it is beautiful. It's by Franny Moyle and it's called The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein. Now it isn't necessarily a book for the chaps. But if your dad or the lovely man in your life has an interest, even a passing interest in history and perhaps in art, I think they will really love this book. It's a beautiful edition. It's beautifully illustrated. The print is wonderful on wonderful stock. You know, I'm a bit of a paper fiend as well. And I think it is worth every bit of its £35. I know that's pricey, but as I say, it's beautifully put together and a real luxury gift, I think, to give someone special. 
And also, it's such a fantastic topic because Hans Holbein was so clever the way that he created illusions. So it needs to be printed on good paper, doesn't it, to, to just do justice to his paintings. Yes, and his association with royalty as well, you know, perhaps that makes it more of a kind of quality read. But his, the painting, the attention to detail is stunning. Yes, it was on a book of the week or something on Radio 4. And I heard a few of the excerpts and I must admit I've gone out and bought the book because it is just so interesting. It's fabulous. That's a really good pick. May I choose another one? One more, one more and then... A Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. This is a present that I am going to buy for myself because it's right up my street. I think, in fact, maybe there's a theme developing of escape here. The life of Marion Graves has always been marked by a lust for freedom and danger. In 1950, she embarks on her life's dream to fly a great circle around the globe. I mean, that's all you need to know. And then, of course, you know, the wonderful things that people are saying about it. It, it looks superb. And I think, you know, a very special gift to buy for yourself. <laughs> it's a novel. Ferociously clever. <laughs> Distinctive and dazzling. It looks beautiful. And again, I think it's one worth getting in hardback. Yes. I've got to say, I'm a, I'm a big buyer of hardback books. I remember when I was 17, when I first started work in a bookshop, I bought a copy of the Gorman Gas Trilogy. And I bought my first uh, one in paperback and I immediately had to then buy it in hardback so I could keep it. And I still, I've still got it all those years ago <laughs> in pride of place. I um, think the, the beauty of a good bookshop is where I, I think we recognise that books are in themselves wonderful artefacts to have, you know, and to enjoy. And however efficient a Kindle is to read, and, and I've even got one myself just to, you know, keep a book rest of things and are great for, for travel but if you really love a story you know to have it in a in a way that you can keep on the shelf and look at and love and remember and enjoy yeah I think it's I think it's really important I think so and I think we were doing all these zoom calls and everyone's had all their books behind them and I think that just recognizes the importance of books both our internal lives but also our external lives isn't it sort of positioning ourselves as the people we want yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. You're you're just reminding me that when I when I was much younger in my teens and early twenties, I moved around an awful lot with my job and rarely staying anywhere more than more than a year or two. But unpacking my books always was the first thing and it was the thing that made it feel like home. Yes. Everything else could change, but my books were where I'd come from, who I was, what I dreamed about. That's lovely. It is books that make a home, don't they? Because they're, they're yeah. yours, they're part of you. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much indeed for those summer recommendations. It's really good to see that um, books do make a home, but they also make a summer holiday. They do indeed. And uh, it's also interesting that view of why you buy a 
but how you choose a book for your holidays. And there's lots of different interpretations of what would work best. So we've been looking at a few of our favourites. So Julian, what's your first book? Well, my first book is A a Fatal Inheritance by Rachel Rees, published Mm -hmm. by Transworld, publishers quite recently. Uh, And I think this is a super summer read, uh, not least because of the jacket design of the book, which is absolutely gorgeous. So you're saying you pick your summer reads so other people can be impressed with what you're reading? Not exactly, but this this I thought was quite nice because it, 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 I think because well, I explained because it, whilst it's difficult to um, to show you the jacket on the wireless here, I thought maybe I could describe it because it's just that it, it's everything that's summary. Uh, and the picture, there's a picture of a lady uh, sitting with her back to us, looking over a perfect azure bay in the distance. And she is wearing a fabulous yellow dress. She's wearing a, a, a woven hat uh, trimmed with silken headband and bow. And it's just evokes summer. It's wonderful. Oh. It does indeed. It really is. I mean, and it's one that you say, wow, that, that's something I want to take on holiday. And in fact, uh, the lady on the front uh, of the jacket is our heroine, uh, Eve Forrester, who is trapped in a loveless marriage, incarcerated in a gloomy house in an equally gloomy and grey London suburb. It's, in, it's, it's 1948. Uh, the um, the uh, skies are, are grey. And out of the blue, uh, Eve receives a letter from a firm of solicitors informing her that she, uh, a wealthy stranger, has left her a mystery inheritance. Uh-huh. However, mm, however, to learn more, she must travel to the glittering French Riviera to find out what it is. So on arrival in the south of France, um, Eve finds out that her legacy is a really enchanting pink villa overlooking the Mediterranean. Oh, I wish I had a mystery. Oh, don't you just? Ancestor that could Absolutely. leave me something like that. Absolutely. And so Eve now is set for a most glamorous life, away from that dull uh, life in London. And she's going to be socialising with film stars and famous writers. However... All is not what it seems under the shimmering sun of the razzmatazz of the Ritzy Riviera. Uh-huh. And Eve sets out to discover the story behind her surprise good fortune before matters get out of control and turn deadly. Now, the reviews for this have been ecstatic, with uh, Lisa Jewell declaring it an essential summer read and heat, adding that is deliciously intoxicating. And finally, my weekly, a delicious escapist read. Well, it sounds, it mm. sounds gorgeous. And I think yeah. you're quite right. Sometimes you do want a book that allows you to escape to a yes. different place, doesn't yeah. it? And I think, I think particularly either if you, if you know you're going on holiday or, or you're just there, that just adds to it. You yes. know, it just adds to the excitement of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a totally different summer read. And I'm going to have my pick, which is a, a real pick, as in mm-hmm. this is definitely what I'm going to take away with me, is The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. No, that's quite now, a pick. This is a huge book. It's nearly a thousand pages long. Crikey. And to me, a holiday is all about not having any pressures to do something. Mm. So I've Mm. got time to sit and really get into this book. Mm. And I've been quite busy recently, lots of things to do. And you sort of stretch lots of different ways. And you haven't got the time to dedicate. And I think this book, you can't just pick at it. You can't pick it up, read a little bit, put it down, and then come back to it and be into it. You need to absorb yourself and give it a good sort of hour or two. Exactly. Devote um, a a good chunk 
of time, yeah. an hour or two hours under the sun, parasol, on in, a beach, whatever it may be, or by a pool. In the shade. In the shade, okay. Look, looking yeah. at the yeah. sun. Yes. In the shade, looking at the sun. Drink by the side, but knowing that I can spend two hours and actually won't be disturbed. Yeah, and nothing else is going to to bother you. That's absolutely. all you've got to do for the day. Yeah, absolutely. And so we all know the story. I mean, obviously, it's the third part of the trilogy of the Wolf Hall and Bring Up mm. the Bodies of the First Two. Hilary Mantel won the Booker Prize for both of those. So you can imagine this is going to be absolutely sumptuous. Uh, love a bit of Tudor, talking before about the Hans Holbein. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking England... 1536, Anne Boleyn is dead, and uh, Thomas Cromwell is starts off where he's breakfasting with the victors. And of course, we know the story because he dies. Mm-hmm. Right, he gets um, dealt with. Yes. He does get dealt with. <laughs> but of course, he's a blacksmith's son from mm. Putney. He's just had the most amazing rise to power. Mm. And uh, he's got no family to back him. He's got no private army. And he's in there with Henry VIII. And I think Cromwell can see what England could be. And I think to be able to give it the time, the dedication it requires, because I know it'll be, I'll be vastly rewarded. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm going to pick that. Excellent. My, Excellent. My read. Now, yours is the next one, which I think is Bitter Lemons. Isn't Bitter it? Lemons of Cyprus by Lawrence Durrell. And I love Lawrence Durrell. Yeah, he's, he's really good. And just to start it off, I've just got a little, a little soup song, a little reading. Ah, right. Okay. While I was finding my bearings and conducting an initial exploration, I lodged with my friend Panos, a schoolmaster, in two small clean rooms overlooking the harbour of Kyrenia, the only port in Cyprus which, diminutive, cleanly coloured, beautiful, has some of the true Cycladean allure. It is on the seaward side of the Kyrenia hills, opposite the shaggy Turkish coastline, whose mountains sink and rise out of the sea, dissolve and reappear with the transparent promise of a desert mirage. Panos lived with his wife and two small sons in a house which must once have been part of the church of St Michael the Archangel. Up forty whitewashed steps, brilliant with sunshine, into a stone courtyard. The obvious site of an ancient acropolis of the town. The belfry of the church towered over us, its bell banging aggressively for every service. The lazy blue and white ensign of Greece softly treading the wind above the blue harbour. The schoolmaster himself was very typical of Greek Cyprus, a round curly head, stocky body with strong arms and legs, sleepy good-natured eyes. Through him I made my first acquaintance with the island temperament, which is very different from the prevailing extrovert disposition of the metropolitan Greek. The styles of politeness were more formalised, I noticed, even between Cypriots. Forms of address were somewhat old-fashioned and lacking in spontaneity. There was a certain thoughtful reserve in conversation, a sense of measure. Hospitality was unobtrusive and shyly offered, as if the donor feared rebuff. Voices were lower and laughter set in a lower key. But the Greek panos spoke was true Greek, with here and there an unfamiliar word from the patois of the island. 
Well, I have to say, um, this might not exactly um, strike you as being a sort of beach reading book, um, but it is one I think that's worth the effort, particularly if you are planning a holiday um, to Cyprus. Um, Lawrence Durrell, as you may recall from uh, one of our earlier programmes, is the elder brother of Gerald Durrell, and it was uh, Lawrence who was responsible for the family moving to Corfu in the mid-1930s. Was he waiting to be inspired? Uh, Well, actually, yeah. Now, interesting, this is why he he did come to Cyprus. Um, Now we meet him um, as an author of renown, um, writing about his three years um, that he spent in Cyprus between 1953 to 1956, after having left government employment with the British Council in Argentina and then the Foreign Office in Yugoslavia. And he did that in order to concentrate on his writing. And being a fluent uh, Greek speaker, um, uh, he chose to come and settle in Cyprus. Now, the book is both comic and serious in turns um, because the friendships he makes, which are the comical side of it, with the delightful islanders, to the buying of uh, his house, uh, and all that entails, of which you can imagine trying to deal with uh, with builders, and it doesn't matter whether it's builders in Cyprus or builders in, in, in the UK. Exactly. Things go wrong. Floorings get Mis, mislaid, misplaced, and what have you. And then he's dis, uh, describing the preparations for the arrival of his brother, uh, Gerald, and his mother. They were coming on holiday, which was, you know, it's really lovely. And it's really nice writing style. But on the serious side, and this is this is interesting, it charts the progress of Cypriot Enosis, which was a movement at the time that sought union with Greece and the developing desire for the Cypriots to be free of British colonial rule. All this this, unbeknownst to Lawrence and the islanders at the time, were the precursors to the political development some 18 years after Lawrence left Cyprus and their unfortunate consequences, which was the partition of the island. Um, Lawrence does an excellent job um, in describing uh, pre-partition Cyprus in detail because he he was travelled the whole of the island, north, south, east and west, which of course is not possible to do now um, for the Turkish-occupied side. Uh, and he went from the coastal trails to the peaks of the Trudos Mountains, where, which I don't know if you know, Heather, for a short time in, in the year there is a vibrant skiing season. No, I didn't know yeah. that, skiing in Cyprus. Yeah, and when I was... Uh, when I was um, making my first trip to Cyprus on business, uh, my colleague and friend, David King, said, oh, he said, you might get to see some snow in, in Cyprus. And, and, and I was going in January, so I did a bit of a snigger behind my hand and said, how silly. Sure enough, up to up the Trudos Mountains, up uh, Mount Olympia, there's snow, thick snow. And sometime later, I was taken by our good friend Kyriakos, um, and we'd gone from the beaches of Limassol, again, it was, it was around February, yeah. in the sunshine, and he took me up to... Mount Olympus, and I have a picture of me knee-deep, literally knee-deep in snow. Wow, I didn't know you were a skier, actually. I'm not. (laughs) I just stand knee-deep in snow. (laughs) (laughs) So what's uh, Lawrence Durrell like as an an author in comparison to his brother? Um, Well, Lawrence is is, is the serious writer. I I think with The Bitter Lemons of Cyprus, you do do find um, the the, the comic side to him in his writing, but it it is quite serious. I mean, his main opus was the Alexandra Quartet, amongst others. And these, they're they're not heavyweight in terms of that they're they're difficult to get through, but he is, he always set himself out 
about, as, as you may remember from uh, my family and other animals and birds, beasts and relatives, even though that Gerald made him more of a comedic um, figure, he did view himself as a serious writer, which, which he is. But certainly with The Bitter Lemons of Cyprus, it's a very interesting um, side to him. Uh, also, he makes mention, I mean, his, 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 his poor wife um, is not much included in that. She was in hospital, she had some mental problems, and also had um, his, mentions his daughter. But uh, it's an interesting look into the man himself, um, but, uh, but an excellent writer, really nice, and it's not, not highfalutin, as some people might think. It's a good, easy read, a very sympathetic writer. And it makes you want to go to Cyprus. It does, it really does, because even though this was written in the 1950s there's so much there that you you know because whilst there's a modern highway that connects um limassol to um to larnica you know you've got all the lovely country roads into the mountains you can still drive into what they call the green roads which are basically what we would call b roads here or less oh and they're most amazing go up into the mountains these are unmade roads it's amazing and then you realize how um uh, grievous digenius who was the leader of the um of the liberation movement how he and his partisans could hide in these mountains i mean it would be impossible to find them it's a stunning country it's one of my favorite countries yes i really love it yes i must admit my i've only been once and i'm afraid we went for spring is it two years ago the weather didn't do justice it was boiling hot in right, the yes. uk so i think it was the hottest February the 14th we'd had and we were shivering and all I can say is the rain helped the mosaics so that's probably that's the highlight highlight of of the I think certainly with Cyprus you see when when you were leaving the cold of the UK in January and February and got to Cyprus it would be mild enough for me to walk around with maybe only a sweater on my shoulders now the Cypriots are funny at that because for them it was really cold so they'd be having sweaters on under their jackets and they'd be really dressed up and they'd have winter coats and maybe we were sort of rolling around but yes it can go horribly wrong you know, in, in, in terms of almost a reverse, you know, you have nice weather back home and then in Cyprus, it's not so good. Yeah, but I think it was uh, Wainwright that said there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. Exactly, so absolutely. it was absolutely. our fault yeah, and I'll we'll just have to go back to Cyprus. And I just want a little, a little plug because if you're, if you're in, uh, in Cyprus, in, in uh, Limassol and you haven't packed your um, Bitter Lemons of Cyprus, which is published by Faber and Faber and still available, do call in at KP Kiriakou, which is a bookseller this is our good friend Kiriakos. Oh, shop. excellent! You may get to see Kiriakos and his wife Dina, but Maria, his daughter, is is running the shop now for the family, and you can get everything you want there. And I've got to say, I've been to the bookshop, a charming family, yeah. and actually brilliant bookshop, really well Lovely. stocked with English yeah. books. Yeah. Absolutely superb, a great absolutely collection. wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Now I've also got an island book ah. called The Island. Victoria Hislop's first book, The Island. It was hugely popular when it came out. Over four million copies have been sold. And it's a Mediterranean love story. Nice. But it's transformed by a unique setting because, of course, the true star of the book is the Isle of Spinalonga, which was a leper colony. Oh, the first right. half oh, of the 20th century. So that's amazing. So the story actually is about the fate of leprosy sufferers wow. in pre-war and wartime Greece wow. and the experimental treatments and the descriptions of how they organise their lives on the island. And also they were, once you were diagnosed with leprosy, mm. you were forcefully taken away from your family oh. and made, I'm going to say made to live in, in isolation, but actually it was isolation in the, in the island. So there's lots of other people there. And some people, of course, 
course, got really poorly mm. ill. And some people didn't. And of course, you didn't right. know. Mm-hmm. So you had to live in the island to say. So it was really fabulous book. It's very, um, it's, it makes you want to visit the island because, of course, mm. it's now uninhabited. Oh, right. Um, I see. So they've made it into some sort of museum. And uh, Victoria Hislop actually has just got this amazing love affair with Greece. So lots of her books are set there. And she's been awarded with honorary Greek citizenship. Oh, lovely. And also is an ambassador for the leprosy charity. Right, yes. Because this book has done so much yeah. for explaining to people what leprosy is all about. Mm. Now, the reason I'm including this book, because lots of you, I'm sure, will have already uh, read it but there has been a sequel that was published last year and of course last year um, Covid year mm. is a year where lots of books would have got missed mm-hmm. uh, because we weren't able to go into our bookshops to, uh, to buy them so one August night um, and that will be published in paperback in July Lovely. and that's the sequel to The Island Right. And also there's a children's book, uh, which is uh, called Maria's Island, mm-hmm. which has been written by Victoria Hislop. So this is her first oh, children's right. book. And it's basically, it's the same world. So it's Spinalonga. Yep. It's still the leprosy colony. So it's in the same time as the island. Mm-hmm. But this time the story is through one of the eyes of the children that we had met right. in the island. Oh, lovely. I see. So that's a really nice, um, really nice link. It is. And, and that's out That's out now. Good. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own
when we're talking about holiday reading it could actually be anything couldn't it well it could I, I, because when I when I go off travelling um, uh, and a certain holiday and it, I usually try to take something with me but often I forget and I quite like to you know su- support um, a bookseller that's bothered to import English language books into their country so I'll go in so for example um, if I'm in Hong Kong which on business I'll go to the Swindon bookshop and I th- I, what I find interesting yeah. when I go away is my taste in books changes. Insofar that I don't sort of think, oh, I must, um, I must go and look for this or this genre. Um, I'll actually go and, and look at the books. And my test is I open up um, the first uh, chapter and I start reading the first chapter. And if that really, and it doesn't matter um, really obviously yes subject and so yes. forth has to be interest which is but why it, you've picked the book exactly. up anyway yeah but then it, it's it's the style of the writing and if that satisfies me as simple as that the first 10 or 15 lines of the first chapter and that will make the decision and so in fact actually interestingly i was uh, which i think i might have hinted when we did our books on detectives oh yeah i was quite a latecomer to detective novels i mean apart from sherlock holmes which was quite a different thing uh, which because they were short so it was fantastic but i was not really really one for um uh procedurals procedurals. and then i I, and i and i started doing that i thought crikey you know this is really good and so i'd expand or then i'd find a a a non-fiction that would be or, or, or a piece of fiction that wouldn't necessarily um i would not necessarily picked up at home but i must admit one of my favorites if i can get is Anything by Isabel Allende. Oh, yes. Oh, she's superb. Um, House of the Spirits is the first one. And I remember the opening, uh, the opening lines, and Barabbas came to us by sea. Now, I think we could do something about opening lines, actually, as a yes. little quiz. We could. Obviously, not, not, <laughs> not, not, not now. Not now. <laughs> My memory's gone. <laughs> but when we prepared it, so we yes. can pretend to be yes. very knowledgeable Something about these things. Something that we prepared things. earlier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, you were talking about going into bookshops, and I've got to say, I always visit bookshops mm. when I go on holiday. And what inspires me is a great bookshop, because yeah. often they'll have books they've never heard of. Exactly. And then when they put those little notes underneath mm. the books saying, oh, I particularly enjoyed this because, yes. and that really mm. just encourages you to yeah. pick that book up and try. Yeah, we, yes, where somebody in the shop has actually made the uh, made the effort to actually do a little bit of a praisey and say, oh yes, this is this, you know, well worth a read or what have you and yeah. it's really quite nice. Oh yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try that one. Yeah. And often I think the thing is, yes, you go to your bookshops here in the UK and I don't know, maybe maybe people are very good at browsing and, and going for something different, but sometimes I'm a little bit pedestrian. But when I go away, it seems to be almost as if you're going into, you know, I like to go into foreign supermarkets because the food range is different and it seems almost like the booksellers have a different range. They haven't really. It's just that my eyes have opened up a bit more Uh, because I'm abroad. I I holiday in the UK a lot. So, you know, this staycation won't be any problem for me whatsoever. And I think just any bookshop is a different world. Yeah, it is. 
So yeah, each um, has got its own style and in, in, in its own, and not only in, in, in the style of the books they take, but the design of the shop, and it's always lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is so why I'd like to say thank you to Ray from the Marlow Bookshop yes. for her recommendations. Yes. And it's really nice to talk to bookshops because they really are there at the the cold faces. But they are. Yes. absolutely. And thank you to Julian as well because I'm afraid we're ending the uh, the program. Gosh, again so soon. Well, it's my pleasure. So thank you to Ellie Pilcher for her, the uh, our author of Whose Planet Can I Blame This On, a fabulous novel. And then we've obviously been recommending some additional books um, today. So that was The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein by and, Franny Moyle. And then we have uh, Spring Cannot Be Cancelled by David Hockney. Uh, Fatal Inheritance by Rachel Reese. Bitter Lemons of Cyprus by Lawrence Durrell. The Island by Victoria Hislop. Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. Mrs Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce. The Mermaids of Black Conch by Monique Roffey. The Diary of a Young Naturalist by Dara McNulty. And Hungry by Grace Dent. You're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Turns Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. I look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on Turning Pages. And hopefully we won't be competing with the drill downstairs. (laughs) Absolutely.